Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Well, there's a lot going on out in the world. I guess there always is, but in the last 24 hours, it seemed especially so. Uh, As I'm recording this intro, we appear to be witnessing the complete implosion of FTX, the cryptocurrency trading firm, whose CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, has been on this podcast, and he has been one of the most visible faces of the effective altruism movement. At the time I interviewed him, Sam was worth over $20 billion. It might have been $30 billion at the time, and had pledged to give virtually all of it away. Cryptocurrency is quite volatile, and as of, I think, the day before yesterday, he was worth something like $15 billion, virtually all of which appears to have evaporated in the last 24 hours. It seems, along with the holdings of many other people who had their money and trust in FTX, at this point, it's not clear just what degree of malfeasance there was on Sam Bankman-Fried's part, so I will reserve judgment there. No doubt we will all learn more soon, but as to whether or not this is a bad outcome for him personally, for investors in FTX, and for the effective altruism community, Uh, There really can be no doubt of that. This was really bad news on all those fronts. In happier news, we had our first virtual retreat over at Waking Up. Over 40,000 people registered for that on the day. I think we had about 10,000 when Joseph Goldstein and I did a live Q&A at the end. Anyway, both the retreat and the Q&A are now available to be done at your leisure in the practice section in the app. And I think we'll be creating more of those in the future. Okay. Well, today I'm speaking with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil is an astrophysicist and the author of the number one bestseller, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, among other books. He is also the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, uh, where he has served since 1996. He has his own Emmy-nominated podcast, Star Talk, and its spinoff, Star Talk Sports Edition. The man has received 21 honorary doctorates and various other awards. He has an asteroid named after him. And most recently, he's the author of a new book titled Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. And we focus on the new book. We talk about what makes science a unique human endeavor, the tension between respecting scientific consensus and overturning it, which leads to confusion about paradigm shifts and scientific controversies. We talk about the social importance of probability and statistics, climate change, our relative blindness to exponential cultural change, social media, social inequality and affirmative action, identity politics, and a post-racial future, the wisdom of focusing on class rather than race, and other topics. It's always fun to talk to Neil. As you'll hear, he is always good company. And now I bring you Neil deGrasse Tyson. I am here with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I feel like an old timer. Well, you are a repeat and uh, much beloved guest. And uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure I've been living with you more than you've been living with me of late because I digested your, your last book uh, 100% as an audio book. I, I, I tend to bounce between audio and 
and uh, hard copy when I, I really want to get something into my brain. But for you, I, I just happened to, there's some great fall weather where I am, and I took a bunch of long walks, and uh, you were walking with me. It was really a <laughs> miracle of technology and a, real, a, a wonderful use of time, which, okay. I, which I highly recommend. And it was my, to I did narrate the book myself. Yes, as you should with that voice of yours. Do, do you, have you narrated all your books, or have you? No, just the shorter ones. I mean, I, I did a huge book on war. It was 600 mm-hmm. pages or so, and I said, no, I can't. I just, if I had the time, I would have, but I just couldn't justify it. Plus, you're taking money out of someone else's mouth where they read professionally, you know? So I figured, let's Do you just... find it hard to do? Is it, does it come easy, easily for you? Or no, is it, it is, is it but not 600 pages. I, you know, to spend six yeah. days in a sound studio or whatever that would have taken. Uh, as it is, this book is relatively short. Story right. Messengers, minus the endnotes, is 200 pages or so. And the book is a small format. So, so I could do that. Plus, a lot of it is in my voice, I mean, figuratively and literally. Because yeah. it's, there's some storytelling that I do in there about events in my life and how that connects to the science and the culture and the, and the geopolitics. So I felt that these are stories no one else can or really should be saying to you as you walk, yeah. in, <laughs> walk in the fall weather. Yeah, yeah. I, I find it hard to do, though, actually. I, and I find that occasionally I have written a sentence that I literally cannot get through out loud, and I have to change the wording. To, I mean, it becomes a Cirque du Soleil routine for me to try to get to the end of the sentence, and I, I have to rewrite it for the audiobook. Well, you're, I mean, you're a brilliant writer, and I, I'm eternally envious, not in a, in a vengeful way, but just envious. Not in a dark way. <laughs> in a dark way, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> your, your command of words that are just the right words in just the right time and place are, are brilliant. And what I try to do when I write is have the sentence work not only as words on a page, but as words that you hear in your head so that there's a rhythm yeah. and a flow and a, and a balance of, of what words are used that may be a little challenging versus others that are not. And in that balance, I think it becomes an easier product to read, to, to read out loud, yeah, I should well, say. Well, you do you do read it very well, so I, I recommend audio if that is a person's predilection. I should say the name of the book here. You you said it quickly, but it's it's Starry Messenger: Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization, and um, the subtitle really does capture the the angle here because you you do think about civilization a lot, and I, and so we'll get into that. I, you you're, you've taken a turn slightly toward the political at various moments in the book. And I remember last time we spoke, your allergy to striking a political note was palpable and um, also uh, understandable. Has, has something changed on that front for you? Or what, what, what's your thinking yeah, I was, now around politics? The book basically came to term in the sense that I've, it's been gestating within me my entire life, if I may use uterine analogies here. Mm. I remember when I was a middle schooler, you know, early years when I'm thinking scientifically literate, in a scientifically literate way, which began maybe when I was nine or 10, but it didn't really sort of hit a stride until I was 12 and 13. And I just remembered looking around at full-grown human beings, adults, listening to what they're saying and watching what they're doing. And I say, what? You're saying, what? You think, what? And in one case, explicitly, there was a comet headed around 
the sun, and it was expected to be very bright. Turned out that it didn't live up to expectations. But that's not what matters here. We astronomers had discovered a comet, and it was in all the news. No one saw it yet with the naked eye. It wasn't bright or close enough yet. And I'm walking out there, and there's a man with a placard marching up and down the street saying, repent, the comet is coming, the end of the world is near. And I, and I said, you're a grown-up, okay? <laughs> Don't you have any understanding? And, and so I've been collecting in me these observations of all the ways people in cultures and civilizations, and especially people in power, think about the world and, the, and how absent it is of science literacy, of, of numeracy, of especially statistical numeracy is, is, is lacking. And so it was in me, and I'm sitting there during COVID, and I said, this, I, it has to get birthed. This book has to come out, and it just got birthed whole. The whole thing just came out of me. Uh, I'm on this site, nice. Goodreads, and someone asked, oh, uh, Dr. Tyson, when you were writing this book, did you how did you get through writer's block? There was no writer's block. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, oh, that's great. So, the whole, so it's been in me. I just haven't had the occasion to write about it. And in a way, it's my most scientific book because everything about what we see, what we do, and what we think, I'm highlighting ways that a scientist would view that. And if you care, I mean, if you don't care, that's one thing. But if you wondered, what, what, how, what does a scientist say about what I'm doing? This is the book for that purpose. Well, what is it that you think makes science unique? I mean, if we're going to take a bird's eye view of our situation and distinguish science from the rest of human endeavors, how would you distill that for someone who's just considering this demarcation for the first time? Yeah, there are two separable variables there. One is science as an enterprise, and the other is the scientist. And scientists, if I need to remind people, are also human, and they are susceptible to many of the, the sort of vagaries of what it is to be human. And so where you think your opinion is of higher value than someone else's opinion, you might think your opinion is a fact, even though the evidence doesn't support it. And all the, the portfolio of biases that you learn about, the great wiki pages on you know, cognitive bias, mm. the scientist has a susceptibility to it like everyone else. However, there's the expectation that they would try to ferret it out in some way or another. And, and so two scientists in an argument, there's an unwritten rule, unwritten, that either I'm right and you're wrong, or you're right and I'm wrong, or we're both wrong. And I don't know many other arguments that unfold in society that have that, pre, that, that, that prior arrangement in that conversation. And by the way, when you have conversations set up that way, at the end you say, you know, I think we need more data, okay? <laughs> or we need, let's, let's wait until this other result comes in. It's, oh, great, great. Now let's go have a beer. So the mm. arguments between scientists end up in a bar, and the arguments between other people, of, even if it's of a similar sort of intensity, can, in their limit, end up in all-out warfare, bloodshed, and death, because two people do not agree on their worldview of who they should worship, who they should sleep with, what side of a line in the sand you live on, what language you speak, what color your skin is. And in science, so much of it transcends that. 
that there's a limit to how much we're going to get riled over. And so there's great value to seeing the world scientifically, especially cosmically, because it lifts you up and away from so much of what divides us. What are some common misunderstandings of what science is? It seems to me that we're, we're living through a period where the dirty laundry of science or the, the sausage making, to, you know, pick your cliche, has been exposed to public scrutiny in a way that has left people pretty cynical about and, and frankly, confused about science. I mean, I, I'm thinking specifically of our misadventures through COVID. Yeah, of right? course. So we, see, of course. we have, you know, changing, and this is something that you touch on some, we have these changes of policy which seem like frank confessions of scientific error that are marks against science as a methodology and science as a source of authority, whereas in most cases, what you're seeing is just the kind of the moving target of scientific consensus and fact-finding and debate and, you know, the, the cure for scientific mistakes is, is just more science, you know, more testing, more data, more scrutiny, more criticism. And the process looks messy as we lurch about we can leave aside for the moment. I, I want to come back to it, but we can. I mean, there's there are obviously other problems like bad incentives and corruption and misinformation and fraud. I mean, they're, they're possible contaminants to any human conversation and and you know any scientific one. But even just the pure scientific process of criticism and uncertainty and and further testing that can look like you know, an all-too-human failure to figure something out for the longest time. And I, I think people now are, I mean, it just science as an institution, you know, I'm just taking the temperature based on, uh, you know, a few polls I've seen and, and just the general vibe on social media. It seems like the institution itself has lost some of its luster in the eyes of, of uh, non-scientists over the last few years, especially because of what's happened around public health messaging and COVID. Uh, I'm wondering what you, um, what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, that's, this is a very important issue, especially in modern times. So I think there, there, there are several moving parts here, and if, if I can unpack it just a little bit. So mm. we live in a time where you don't have to get off your ass and go to a research library to gain access to research articles. You can get them online. But once you go online to find them, it, you have the mixture of what is authentic research with what people just want to be true, uh, because any Google search will find you every other person who thinks exactly the way you do in what it is you're searching for. So you have a contamination, a noise level of your ability to find that which is authentic and that which isn't. That's the first part of it. Second part of it. The scientific community is not trained at communicating with the public. It is not in our, it's not a, a part. I took one class in graduate school about giving public talks, something like that. Mm -hmm. it, was, it became a mandatory thing. I'm, I'm old enough, so I'm talking about the 1980s. So this was early. It was like, wow, why are you doing that when we should be learning what to do in the lab, right? So even that got pushback in its day. So now you have people who spent their lives in a lab and they did well and now they, they, they're promoted to some higher position of 
institutional authority and messaging, and now the press is in front of them. And so what are they going to say? All right, so we're early COVID, and one of them says, oh, this is not going to be too bad. We're going to have, it'll be over within a few weeks, and the cases will be contained. They don't know to say, but they should have known, or in another world, they would say, based on these assumptions that we're making on how China is handling it and how Scandinavia is handling it, if we do the same as they do, we will contain this within two months. Okay? The if-then statement is so important. But the urge to give a definitive statement to the press so that the press can then create a headline is so high, it leaves you then susceptible to, like you said, the, 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 the bleeding edge moving frontier of one research article versus the next, building on the previous one, possibly showing that it's not as effective as was, as was intended. That's possible on the frontier. And so the couching of the, the advice, I, I think in retrospect, well, I knew it when it was happening, but the institutionally, they, they had, uh, especially the CDC with their new director said, we, we're going to have to be better at this, better at this communication. And that is for damn sure. So now you have this, this uh, what is science and how and why does it work? You see people watching this edge of science move back and forth and give conflict, sometimes conflicting information. Now they want to apply that to anything else science says. They say, well, maybe Earth is not round, okay? Or mm. maybe we're not warming the planet. Or maybe because scientists can be wrong. And what they're missing is, of course, when you have a scientific result verified multiple ways by experiment, it is not later shown to be false. This is a missing piece of this understanding of how and why science works. It's not taught in the schools. It's not taught. And you even have people say, science, people who mean well say, science, unlike religion, will change its mind when the data shows that it needs to change its mind. E will never equal MC cubed, okay? It's MC squared. Mm. It's not, there are things that we're not changing our mind about. Not because we're stubborn, but because the evidence is so overwhelming that we have something in the books that we're not looking to see if that's going to be different one day because all experiments have verified it. We're on to the next problem. So all of these are factors. And, and I'm pretty sure that if science were taught as an enterprise, taught as a means of querying nature, taught as a possibly unique way to sift that which is you want to be true from that which is true, then people would come out of the school systems without this kind of skepticism of the entire scientific enterprise. Yeah, it seems to me that there is a, if not a paradox, something close to a paradox at the heart of the enterprise that understandably leaves people confused. And it's, it's around this tension between valuing scientific consensus and scientific authority and not being blinkered by it. Because, you know, obviously, almost by definition, scientific progress, you know, any real breakthrough is a breakthrough because it goes against the grain of, you know, received opinion and by definition, expert, you know, consensus, right? So it's when you have a, you know, an Einstein who gives us special and general relativity, you know, that goes against a prior paradigm 
and you know to the initial mystification and consternation and and just frank resistance of many qualified experts you know it even goes further with you know, where you know someone like einstein himself became you know resistant to quantum mechanics right and you know he famously said you know god doesn't play dice with the universe and debated bohr until i guess the end of his days never having fully come around and you know the the realistic picture of what's going on there is, is still not resolved but there is this tension because you don't accept something as true just because most scientists believe it or just because the most famous nobel laureate in the given field believes it or says it so that's really not the cash value of the reasons for belief you have I me mean, to really get to the cash value you have to actually understand the, the the data and the argument and the evidence and you know it's in the math it's in the detail that gives you the the reasons for saying it's so right and so just to i mean to take the simplest case I mean, we it's, it, we believe that that water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen not because the most famous chemists have said so but the fact that every chemist on earth you know with a you know who's neurologically intact would agree that it is so that is a surrogate for the real reasons to believe in the chemistry of water and you know we can't we, there's not enough time in a single human life to run every experiment and drill down to bedrock on every scientific claim we have to take received opinion and scientific authority as a surrogate for our own investigation you know all the areas where there's not a, a pressing reason to do other otherwise so there is this dual mode we're in because we do care about scientific consensus and authority and when you know 95% of scientists say that something is so the weight of our credence is with them as opposed to the crankish fringe who's saying the opposite and yet it's also true that the lone voice in in the scientific wilderness is occasionally right and can completely upend the scientific consensus based on better arguments and better evidence and it's in the presence of any given minority voice you know the one epidemiologist who says that uh, you know these new mrna vaccines are going to kill millions of people unless you really understand the field or even sometimes even if you do understand the field it might not be immediately obvious if you're in the presence of a crank or a lone genius right and there's and there's work to do to figure that out and i feel like what we're living through now is a an instance where trust in scientific authority and consensus uh has been dialed way down right the institutions and for understandable reasons and for obviously spurious ones uh, i mean the institutions have also heaped shame upon their heads by being you know obviously politicized on various points you know in, in debates about you know gender and race and i mean it's just been some crazy stuff happening even in our best scientific journals and you've got epidemiologists by the thousands castigating right-wing people for their public demonstrations but then supporting left-wing people for their public demonstrations all within the same pandemic and so people have grown quite cynical but i'm just wondering if you can speak to this core tension between trusting scientific authority and the progress of science being more or less synonymous with overturning authority at least on certain points yeah so there's a caricature of science which has understandable and obvious origins but doesn't represent 
the typical scientific advance. The caricature is uh, everyone believes one thing, and then there's some lone genius who comes up with an alternative idea that would negate or otherwise render, render wrong the prevailing view, and then they're suppressed, and then they finally rise up, and then it becomes the new paradigm. And mm. that is not how most of this works. All right. So, for example, take the discovery of the double helix. We did not have a prior paradigm before the double helix. It's like we just didn't know. Right. Okay. It was, right. uh, we don't know how it is. We're, we're looking. Up comes the double helix. Oh, that's a, good, that's a good one. That works. And arguably, one of the greatest discoveries in science was not the act of overthrowing a previously held idea. So, and I just want to make it clear that most discoveries in science are of that nature, right. not of the nature of overthrowing a previously held idea. That's my first point. Second, a previously held idea, you use the word consensus and authority often in those few moments, yep. and I don't like the word authority because that implies you should do it because they have some position of power. And plus consensus, the way most people hear that word, it would be opinions the gathering of opinions, and you look at what the majority opinion is. We also use that word in science, but not to reference opinions, which creates some of this, this disconnect, communication disconnect. We use it for what is the scientific consensus, and what that typically refers to is the research papers on this topic. What do they show? And the research paper is not a scientist's opinion, it is the scientist displaying data. And provided they're not themselves biased, like I said, there's always that risk, especially in the scientific fields that involve the measurement and the analysis of other human beings. They tend to be particularly susceptible to bias. That would include all the fields of psychology, anthropology, and the, perhaps the most biased period of any field ever would be like 19th century anthropologist creating the races of man. And, ranking them mm. and judging them and, and, and making that the foundation of the science of eugenics, right? There's a whole thing. You have to like look really carefully when people start ranking other people. What is their field? What is their motive? What are their funders? And the, and the like. In the physical sciences, which is a little more distant from the social sciences and the, and the biological sciences, more distant from human beings, we're a little bit less susceptible to that. And so you look at what does the body of research show? We will call that a consensus, but it has nothing to do with their opinions. And I assert that if you have 97 research papers saying one thing because the data shows it, and one person says no, you, can, you should bet on the 99, you should bet, on, bet yeah. on that consensus because that's how it goes. The, the one person that says, you said, do you have data? Do you have... What, what it, well, I don't think it's that way. Go check it out. You'll find out that they will cherry pick things to fit their needs or their beliefs or their worldview. And just because an entire scientific community does not agree with you, it doesn't mean you're correct. <laughs> okay. So, so and, and the point with, with Newton becoming Einstein, this is a fascinating chapter. Here's the towering achievements of classical physics. And we have Newton, Newtonian gravity and Newtonian motion. Oh my gosh, it's explaining everything. 
But then, wait a minute, there's some things it doesn't explain. Ooh, okay, well, there's Mercury's orbit, and there's weirdnesses, and we don't... And, and oh, Einstein comes along, so I got, I got this. And he introduces special relativity and general relativity, which is basically the modern version of motion and gravity. And they supplant Newton. They don't go back into Newton's world and say, your experiments that you did are wrong. No, they're still correct. What mm -hmm. it did was draw a larger circle around the Newtonian physics. And it said, Newtonian physics is a special case of Einsteinian physics. You put low speeds and low gravity into Einstein's equations, they become Newton's gravity. So yes, it was a new worldview, and it took a lot of people to get used to it. Oh yes. But that did not mean the previous worldview was all of a sudden wrong in all the ways that it had been tested. We grew mm. in our understanding of the world. And Einstein's resistance to quantum physics, I, he, okay, this was his attitude towards it, but he contributed mightily to quantum physics. Some of the most important results came from him. He just mm. didn't like the underlying foundations of what could be making it. Okay, but the experiments still did all the talking. And so, yeah, I mean, people like to talk about scientists fighting and arguing. At any conference, that's what they're doing. But once it emerges, once it comes through, through the mill, the experimental mill, that's not what anybody's arguing about anymore. And so, so yeah, what do we do about our institutions? They need to communicate better. They need to communicate more honestly. They need to not use the word, these are the errors in my, me in my measurement. That's, they, they don't know how that, it, people hear that. They say, oh, mm -hmm. they've made errors. No, these are the uncertainties in the measurement, and every measurement has uncertainties. That's not taught. That, where, where do you get that? You sort of get it somewhere, maybe in one lab class in high school, that's it? When that's a fundamental feature of what it is to take data. And the next experiment needs to reduce those uncertainties so that you can have greater confidence in what's going on. And then you look at what all the science tells you. And, and, and it's what comes, it's why we have the National Academy of Sciences. They digest this information and present reports. There it is. And that's mm -hmm. not, if, we're not trained to do that. And it's sad because we needed that at the, at the moving cusp of COVID. Yeah, let me, I think uh, we should, let's take another pass over the same terrain because I, I think I want to I drag you back into the weeds here because I think it is, it's just a mess. And uh, if we can straighten anything out, I, th I think we should. So there's a few, few other things I'll put into play here. Well, one is just an analogy, which I think I, I have from you. It's like I have a vague memory of you having said this years ago. I think we were probably at one of those Salk Institute conferences. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong or maybe... Maybe I'm right, and, and there'll be no way to know. You won't remember having said this, but I think the analogy when something like, you know, imagine science is like a, an apple. At the level of the skin of the apple, you know, the front edge of it, there's this area of scientific controversy where we're pushing into the unknown. And yes, there's, you know, the, the whole paradigm could swing in the balance. But as you move away from the skin, as you go into the, the meat of the apple and down to the core, most of it is no longer in play, right? And it's, and things are not going to be radically overturned. And it's so, for instance, to just to give a biological example, it is just not the case that we might wake up tomorrow and discover that DNA has nothing to do with biological inheritance, right? That's not the kind of 
Popperian falsification that may yet await us in science. I mean, we just, there's just too much data to conserve. It would be an absolute miracle at this point if DNA had nothing to do with inheritance. And so that's not the, that's not the place, that's not the part of the apple where there's, there are big movements are going to occur. Does that capture your thinking, or yeah, do you so I, recall I, ever saying that? that? Not my analogy, but I, I, I like oh. it. Generally, when I speak of apples, <laughs> they're falling. <laughs> no, yeah. other than the Newton <laughs> apple that did yeah. not hit him, uh, that the the Earth's atmosphere is to Earth as the skin of an apple is to an mm-hmm. apple in terms right. of relative thicknesses. So, just to put that in context for people who think we're at the bottom of some infinite ocean of air, it's actually quite thin. That's the only case I would have used an apple, but I'm in full agreement Mm. with that reference. For that reason, the term paradigm, as introduced and used in the way that Thomas Kuhn used it for the structure of scientific revolutions, is way overplayed, okay? Because a paradigm shift, as, as people think about it and use it, is every scientist is thinking this, but then some new data comes along and then everyone shifts over and then they think something different leaving you with the impression that science is a construct of belief systems at any given moment. And the last time there was a paradigm shift of that kind was the Copernican revolution, where no one knew any of this, okay? But that predates the active engagement of scientific, of, of, of experimental science, where you can say, I have an idea, mm-hmm. but let me test it. The testing an idea did not become a routine thing until at least the 1600s. And the Copernican revolution basically predates that, what goes right up to Galileo. My point is, yes, we can call that a paradigm shift. I have no hesitation. But Newton to quantum physics, Newton to Einstein, is not a paradigm shift as much as it is a growth in our understanding of the world. Because nothing shifted, it just got bigger. And it's a very important difference here. So I, I don't think anything is so strongly held as to be a paradigm if there's insufficient data to support it. They're just people's leaning towards one idea or another. I would hardly call it a paradigm. And now, what, what do you do about the social problem, really? I mean, it's only an intellectual problem in that we don't always have enough time to drill down far enough and, and figure it out and do science on, on the clock to anyone's satisfaction. But what do you do with the problem that you can always find a PhD or an MD or you know, a collection of them who will take any position on anything, right? You'll, you can find PhDs who will say that you know, smoking doesn't cause lung cancer. And I, that actually was a documentary on some of these guys, and they were the, the same ones who then set up shop on other points of non-controversy. They moved from smoking to, I think, you know, fire retardants in uh, California and, and other topics. But, I mean, this is something we witnessed during COVID. You, you had people who would, you can, you can just always find someone to put on a podcast who has the right scientific credentials, you know, seemingly, and yet is taking this position that is extreme and extremely deranging of the conversation about, you know, what, what is plausible or what is worth paying attention to in any given moment. How do you recommend people assimilate that fact? Because it is, I, you know, I, I just noticed, you know, people who I, I could name who should be, you know, connoisseurs of misinformation at this point get quite 
bewildered in the presence of many of these people. And and again, this is the thing that makes this so bewildering is that in the presence of a an emerging pandemic, there really w- was a lot to be uncertain about. And there, there were, a, in, in any given week, the facts weren't yet in. And as I said earlier, it was a moving target, and to some degree, it still is. How do you deal with this as a consumer of information? How do you think about the public consequence of basically everyone being able to do their own research and therefore everyone is able to land in the presence of someone who seems to have all the the relevant scientific bona fides and yet they're so outside the bounds of scientific consensus on any given point that they should be treated with with extraordinary skepticism. Yeah, so the the, the 900-pound gorilla in what you said is that the people who are selected to give this dissenting view are people whose dissenting views resonate with your politics, your religion, your culture, or your overall desires. So you're fulfilling, a, you're finding someone who will fulfill what you want to be true rather than what is true. So that's a, that's a first part of that. Another part is that you're, I, I, I try to address this in the book, in the, in the chapter on risk and reward. So mm. what I do is I take certain risks and I recast it in another way, which is a formally equivalent risk, but makes you think about it a little differently. So for example, for a while, the off-quoted number was 97% of research papers show that humans are, are warming the earth. And in the past 20 years, that percent has gotten higher. It's probably 99 or near 100%. So, so, but let's go back to when it was 97% and that's when everyone was talking about it. Uh, it's when they first manifested. So I said, all right, let's say there's 100 engineers and there's a bridge just brand new built across this river. And 97 engineers say, if you drive your car across that bridge, it will collapse. And three of them say, no, not a problem. Just go ahead and do it. In fact, it'll be safe for you and everyone who follows you. Like, would you drive your car across that bridge? Like, would you? And I'm thinking you probably won't. Even before you investigate, are there biases among the engineers? You would say, you know, these are engineers. and I'm not an engineer, but I'm going to go with this consensus. So to say... I'm going to go with the 3% of the 100% of climate scientists who are saying, by the way, many of them were not even climate scientists, but they were scientists, to say that we're not warming the, the earth, and that fits with my economic philosophies, that I'm hoping that when you see these numbers presented in these other ways, you might think a little differently about it. Take smoking, for example. The last numbers I saw, there's an 8% chance of dying from lung cancer if you're a chain smoker, okay? And somewhere around there. And, and of course, there are other higher percentages for other diseases, but let's take lung cancer for a moment. And then I say, all right, let's recast that. So next Tuesday, everyone who lights up a cigarette, okay, will be entered in this lottery so that the moment you light your cigarette and take your first puff, 8% of them their head will explode and they'll fall over as a bloody, gut, gutty mess on the street. Okay? And then everyone else, if that didn't happen to you, you can smoke the rest of your life. 
Are you going to take that chance? Mm. Are you going to risk that? And by the way, that's a cheaper solution than what reality would be because then you die immediately and there isn't this health care that has to be sustained while you first get cancer and maybe we'll try to cure you and remove a lung and whatever else happens. So that would be a way cheaper solution in society if that were enacted. Of course, it's not. But, but so I, I spend a fair amount of pages recasting certain risk factors that mm. people are interpreting in ways that they think don't apply, doesn't apply to them. And so other than that exercise, I don't have a silver bullet here. But what I do know is that public illiteracy, innumeracy in statistics and probability are at the heart of so much of people's understanding of risk. And I'm not the only one who thinks about it. In Oxford, is it Oxford or Cambridge? There is, there's a chair, an endowed chair, called the Professor of the Public Understanding of Risk. Hmm. Somebody said, this is important enough, we're going to make an entire endowed line, professor line, to address this. And so, yeah, people are making decisions that they think they've thought it through correctly, and in fact, they haven't. Yeah. Well, let's linger on the topic of climate change, because that is especially difficult to think about because as you point out, the economic incentives, certainly the short-term ones, seem to point in, in the direction of not taking it seriously. And it suffers from many of the variables I've mentioned so far. I mean, there, there are obvious reasons why the general public is, has kind of lost sympathy with the consensus opinion because it's been so highly politicized. It's... Um, you know, in, in certain cases, uh, you know, religion a interacts unhelpfully with it. But now in, in recent years, it's, we have this new face of climate activism, which seems to be teenagers with, with obvious anxiety disorders and, and, you know, or autism. I mean, the teenagers who need help uh, have, in some cases, become the most prominent voices of climate activism. And in, in, you know, in recent weeks, and maybe this has been going on long, for longer than that, but I've just noticed it probably about a month ago, you've got people who are gluing themselves to the most famous works of art in, in major museums or, or, or throwing paint or soup on um, you know, you know, priceless pieces of art. And uh, you know, this is turning off the general public for obvious reasons. I can imagine your head has been settled on the topic of climate change for quite some time, why has this been so difficult to take seriously as a problem? Yeah, it's a, it's a mismatch of timescales, right? Yeah. You know, we have an election cycle that runs on a two-year, with two years worth of expiration dates, and then they get renewed. And, you know, senators are six years, presidents are four, possibly eight. If you want to talk about something on a 20-year timescale, How's that ever going to show up in your, in your stump speech? How's that even going to, uh, who's going to be listening to you? Oh, the very youngest of the generations who will inherit what it is you do. But even then, is that enough for you to get elected on? So there's a mismatch between our political system and our capacity to engage solutions for problems that are operate on a timescale longer than the political timescale of what we of what we, of the society that we built for it. So yeah, I mean, this, this is part of the problem. By the way, that kind of activism, I mean, this is, you, you tend to see that with younger people, 
in any level, in any topic of activism, all right? I don't know that 60-year-old mm. men and women throw paint on, throw soup on paintings. It's, it's the young generation. The young generation protested the Vietnam War. It was not the older people, it was the younger people. So, so I, it's not a weird fact that mm. we have a social cultural issue in need of progressive change, and the next generation is leading that. That does not, uh, I'm not surprised by that. And soup on a, on a painting, it, it got your attention, okay? <laughs> it mm. got people's attention. And so, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to say other than to say, well, we'll one day we'll think about solving this. That's a recipe for disaster when it involves an existential risk. And by the way, again, I blame people's of the fact that we're not taught probability and statistics in school. So let's take the bell curve for an example, okay? Uh, in my world, we call it a Gaussian curve because he sort of first laid yeah. out the fully explored, the fully expressed mathematical form of it. And what it says is most things that vary uh, would be in the middle, and, and there are fewer and fewer things out on each extreme, okay? Th fewer, fewer uh, representations of whatever variable you're measuring. Okay, so now watch. They announce there's been a 1.2 degree, 1 degree increase in the temperature, in the average temperature of the world, Celsius increase. And this will be devastating. And, and you say to yourself, I have more than a one degree variation in the rooms of the home that I live in, all right? Yeah. Within the same room, I have a more higher temperature variation than that. And then from day to day, from, and from day to night? So you're telling me I'm worried about a one degree change in the temperature of the earth? Well, okay. Well, that, okay. <laughs> because we're not talking about what's in the middle. The one degree shift in the average Yes, that bell curve shifts a little bit to the right. Okay, temperature increases to the right. You shift it a little bit, it looks almost the same. Except when you go on the tail. Now you slide off to that tail. A one degree shift in the middle has devastating consequences out on that tail. And that tail of the distribution is where all the action is that people are reacting to. With the, the intensity of the hurricanes and the... And the, the the once-in-a-century flood zone that now floods every 10 years. The, the epic rainfalls. You know, right now, it's, it was 73 degrees out my window today in, in mm -hmm. New York City, right? And so, well, that's odd because it's November. Well, it's just a day, okay, maybe. All right, but the tail of that distribution carries all manner of extreme weather with it. And now we're talking about two degrees by 20. 30, 2050, or I forgot the exact year, and we'll just see more and more of this happen. If people knew and understood the effects of the tail of a bell curve of data relative to what you see in the middle, maybe they'd react differently. I, I don't know. You know everyone in their math classes, mm. I will never need to know this for the rest of my life as they <laughs> learn trig, trig identities. And so... I, again, that, I think it's that is definitely a pedagogical system. mistake that we don't teach probability and statistics to high school students routinely. We teach them you know, you know, trigonometry and calculus and, and you know, if calculus, which arguably have much less application to problems of immense social concern. So my one 
conspiracy theory in the book is that the reason why we don't teach probability statistics is because money for education in practically every state is partially fed by lottery tickets. <laughs> And so, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, yeah. so if, this, if, if you taught probability statistics in the school, no one would play the lottery. <laughs> and so, yeah, you have this story about uh, the, the scientific convention in Vegas where the, the, I think it was the MGM Grand made yes, less money yes. than it had ever oh made gosh, in, yeah, the in history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The American Physical Society, which is my, my yeah. physics peeps, in, back in 1986, they were going to hold their convention in San Diego and there was a hotel snafu. And, and Vegas says, we'll take you. And the MGM Grand, the, the, back then the MGM Marina, I think it was called, the biggest, one of the biggest hotels in the world, they will take you. So 4,000 physicists descended on Vegas. And at the end of the week, there's a newspaper headline said, physicist in town, lowest casino take ever. <laughs> so, so it's not that they somehow figured out the craps table or anything. They just simply didn't bet. And the, when you look at, uh, no, I didn't formally take statistics and probability in high school, but I learned it on my own. And, I, uh, and in, in college, you learn it because I majored in physics. And so there's a little bit of it and more tactics and more methods and tools that are accumulated every year. And so that you reach a point where you just think that way rather than have it mm. be, a, be a, a, a struggle to come to an understanding of how all of this world works. And that's why, and, and of course, advertisers know this, so they will show you a person commenting on the product. This is the best ever. Rather than simply show you the bar chart of people's comments, right? That's not going to impress you the way the testimony of one person will. And that, on some level, is a travesty because it may be understandable because you believe your own kind more than you're going to believe a drawing on a piece of paper. But still, if once you see what role probability statistics can and should play in our lives, oh my gosh, you completely change the way you live. When we had mm -hmm. kids, I looked at, the, at the, 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 the statistics on childhood deaths and the rank order of reasons why children die. And one of them is in cars with no seatbelts and no, no, no car seats drowning in, in, in pools in the suburbs, crossing the street, chasing a ball, uh, electricity. I went through that list and I said, okay, I'm going to go one by one through these. No, I'm not going to ask my neighbor, what did you do to protect your, from your, I'm looking at the data, but why am I doing that? Because I'm a scientist, but I shouldn't have special access to, to, to life's security and life's comforts just because I know how to read a data table. That should be something we all absorb from our years in school. And it's unfortunate mm. that it's not. So th this book was an attempt to sort of bring everybody together on this so you can look at problems differently. You know, my, 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 I long for it in this. I want anyone who would buy the book to buy it and read it before Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> so that mm. you can engage the crazy aunt, the, 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 the so weird you can uncle. browbeat your crazy aunt. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and you'll, you'll calmly say, well, have you considered it this way? Or what about that way? And just find ways to address all the, all the mm. fuzzy thinking that's going on in this world, especially on occasion among those in power. Well, to, to linger on the point of climate change and, and the problem of 
the public understanding of science in the face of it. It's it's not merely that the time horizon is out of sync with our politics, although that certainly is, has been a problem. And that's a problem for everything, though. I mean, we, we, we're hostage to a, a four-year presidential cycle, and therefore we can't, almost by definition, think about any problem whose time horizon is, is longer than that. And there's also the, the fact that responding to climate change effectively is a, it requires a global response, and we're dealing with more local national politics. But um, there's also this problem that even when we're palpably living in the tales of chaos here, you know, scientific circumspection and humility prevents us from painting a, a clear causal picture of what's happening. So you can't say as a climate scientist, yes, I can guarantee you that this hurricane or this fire season in California or this you know, wonderful 73-degree day in, in November in Manhattan, I can only imagine it's, uh, that's one of the upsides of climate change. Uh, uh, <laughs> Shh, yeah, don't well, say that to uh, yeah, that's right. It's, it's got to be good for somebody some, sometimes. Yeah, in um, England, they're growing champagne grapes now. Right, exactly. Before. Yeah. By the way, by grape, uh, wine growing data is one of the deepest sources of climate data that exists on Earth because it goes right. back oh, centuries. Yeah. Interesting. But we, we have a sense that we know we're seeing the evidence of this in real time. Not just, it's, not, it's no longer a hypothetical. It's over across you know, 20 years or more. And yet we can't say with anything like scientific confidence that this situation on your television screen now is the result of man-made climate change. Right. No one can or should do that. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. But that, that scientific honesty, which is just good form when scientists are speaking with other scientists, public facing, when you have six minutes of a news broadcast, it sounds like the scientists are still saying, we don't really know anything, yeah. right? Yeah, so I, I think the solution, again, this is, I hate to sound like a broken record, whoever remembers what a broken record means, mm -hmm. that if you, in school, learned that science is a way of learning about how the natural world works, more than it is a satchel of facts. Because every science book, you, you, take it out of high school, take a look at it, there's the chapter, and then there are the bold-faced words that you're going to memorize, because there's a vocabulary test based on those, and then you have to memorize, and it's, you view it as a satchel of facts, mm -hmm. rather than as a living, breathing activity to get us closer to an understanding of the forces of nature than we had in a previous generation. And so if, if we come up knowing that and we say, we can make statistical statements about the climate going forward, that these models, and we have confidence in these models, that they will come forward, that, that it, it will unfold in this way statistically. Again, people don't understand statistics. They don't know how to embrace it. They only know the event that affects them in any given moment. So, yes, there's a mismatch between how scientists are trained to think and speak and report and how people are trained to think of what science is. And that gap has to close. Otherwise, mm. we will never be able to engage. We will never be able to properly elevate science to policy in ways that where intelligent laws and legislation can be enacted. Hmm. Yeah, one point I would make here, and 
I've made it before. I think I made it even a half hour ago, but it, it just bears reiterating that whenever you see a case of real you know, misinformation or disinformation coming from science, right? I mean, just frank scientific fraud, as one occasionally sees, the corrective to that, again, it, it doesn't come from outside of science. Correct. It's just, the, right. it, it's more science. It's proper science that, that solves that problem. So this just happened in, in neuroscience. There's now some question as to whether the mechanism that delivers us Alzheimer's dementia is uh, as dependent upon beta amyloid plaque as we've believed for several decades, uh, or dependent at all, in fact. And that's due to the fact that there, there does seem to have been a, a fraud where a scientist was faking figures, and, and this just got caught by somebody who was studying the pattern of, of regularity in, in these various images in, in scientific journals, and it just seemed statistically impossible that you would, you would see these images be so self-similar. Yeah, but so I, would, I would say that in that case, everyone was basing an understanding on the research results of one person. And had that been, no, this is another problem, the verification problem in the funding sources of science, right? Do I get famous if you come up with a really interesting result that happens to be wrong, but it's really interesting? Do I get, is someone going to fund me to double check your work? Right. If you're right, then I, I just double checked it. If you're wrong, then I, it's a major thing, but you know, the funding agencies yeah, need the to- incentives are wrong there. Yeah. Correct, correct. And so if everyone was basing it on this one paper, I have no sympathy for you to say, we all believe that for two generations or two decades. I'm, I have no sympathy. It was the work of one individual. It's got, you need more verification than that. Mm. And of course the press doesn't help because they will look at whatever is the latest dis uh, paper, no matter how crazy cockamamie it is, and then make it the headline. And without looking, they should say, this is a lone result. We are awaiting verification from independent researchers. Okay, that should be like the first line that would couch everybody's attempt to embrace or, or, or urge to embrace those results, especially if it's an important result that has social cultural implications. Which my field yeah. rarely does, yeah. by the way. So yeah. I don't envy the neuroscientists because everybody's looking at every every step you guys take. So one thing we are um, almost constitutionally blind to, which you talk about in your book, is exponential change. Maybe you can take a tour through that concept for us because it's something we are living with, and yet we we seem to never know we're living with it. Yeah, isn't that an interesting point? So in the chapter on, on exploration and discovery, it, it involves a, a run of 30-year increments from 1870 to 2020. And I just tried, I took a stab at, at what is the pace of change in our culture and in our society and what, how would you measure that? I, I don't know and I don't know, but let's explore what 30 years gets you. And upon doing so, I'm very proud of like the effort I put into that. So I hope uh, the, the reader or the listener is as enchanted by it as I was as I wrote it. The point is, we like to think at all times that we might be living in special times. Because you look at almost any plot of, you know, discoveries or, or, or let's, let's, let's be simpler, the population chart. And you, you see this 
population chart, and it's basically flatlined for most of the chart. And then it makes mm. the steep up uptick right around you, right around your time, the last 20 or 30 years. And wow, population really kicked in. No, no, it is simply growing exponentially. And if you truncated that plot at any place along that curve, truncate it, and then replot it, the last two decades will be as steep as the ones you just saw. So you, when you're living on an exponential growth curve, it will always look like the most recent years were the most significant, always. Hmm. And so, so whereas it is, the, it is the engine that's just doing its thing. And I, the simplest example here is the algae on a, on a pond, where you just learn, you, we all, you know, people who do this are very familiar with this example. Probably your entire audience is as well. But for the, for the three of them out there who might not be, <laughs> uh, you have algae, and you're told that the algae doubles every day in area covering the pond. And there's this little patch of it over in the corner. Okay, it's a tiny patch. You hear it just doubles every day. You don't much worry about it. You go away for a month and you come back and the pond is one half covered with algae. And so then they ask you, well, how much longer did we wait before the whole pond is covered? And our linear brains have the urge to say, well, it'll be another month. Right. It took a month to get this far. It'll take another month. No, it's one day. I just said it doubles every day. One day. One day, you come back and the entire lake is covered. And, and this, our inability to think exponentially in that regard, I think got us into trouble with the 2008 economic collapse. How different might mm -hmm. it have been if the banker tells me, oh yeah, you can afford this loan. And I said, well, wait, let me quickly do a compounded interest calculation if the interest rate upticks by one or two points. Did anyone do that upon being handed the loan? No, they just took the loan without even questioning what the consequences of exponential math would have on your ability to pay your mortgage. So I wonder how much of that would have been avoided, if not all of it. And uh, also with COVID, you learn, oh, there's 100 cases in this town, there's up to 1,000, but we think, oh my gosh, there's 100 one week, 1,000 the next week, it's going to be a million in two months. I got this. No, no, it's just growing. It'll be 2,000 and 3,000. No, it's not how exponential spreads work. It's a missing, like you said, well, how did you say? We're not, we're genetically, constitutionally yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, ill-equipped to think exponentially. But on the bright side, uh, our, certainly our technology is growing exponentially. Uh, and, and, you know, the Moore's Law and everything that surrounds it, uh, what we're doing, how we're doing it, and why, it's quite a joy to be mm. on an exponential growth curve. And for, for context, you go to the year 1900, all right, there's a, I, I, I quote from this article in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle where they're taking their, they're, they're putting their best experts on what the next century will be. And one of them says, we, by the way, they're riding high on the railroad, was crossing the country, and they had, you know, the Orient Express was in full form, and they mm. and it had uh, 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 blimps, and, or, uh, Airships and and it was people were and the bicycle was perfected and the the earliest yeah. of the combustion engine car. All right, so the guy said, we can scarcely imagine that advances in the twentieth century in transportation 
will be as great as those were in the 19th century. <laughs> it was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. You have no freaking clue. And this is part of the problem. At, at the beginning of any 30-year stretch, you, you're going to get it all wrong. And so when people, when 2020 came around, I said, let's, let's, what's going to happen in 2050? And there's everybody, I'm saying, no, I'm not even going to, no. I just went through this exercise from 1870 to 2020, and I will not be made a fool. Because no matter what I say, it will be that. And it reminds me, I, again, I'm giving examples of people thinking they can see the future. In the early 90s, there was this ad campaign by AT&T. It was a pretty successful campaign. It says, you will. So the, the ad is, have you ever wondered if you could blah, 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 and they mention some futuristic thing and say, you will, AT&T will bring it to you. Well, one of them was something I never dreamt of doing, never wanted to do, never did do, never will do. They said, there's a guy on a beach reclined on a chair, and the, the surf is up at his feet. And he says, have you ever wanted to send a fax from the beach? <laughs> well, mm -hmm. you will. AT&T will bring it to you. It's like, I never wanted to do that. I'm sorry. No, no. Our advances took different directions than multiple fax machines in your home. So that's a fun so chapter you, to write. Do you think it's going to be technology to the rescue? Are you fundamentally bullish on where all of this is headed and that we will, uh, there are problems However intractable they appear now, many of them, even some of the most important ones, will magically disappear in the presence of the requisite technology as yet uninvented. Yeah. And, and of course, you spent a lot of your own podcast time addressing so many of these moving parts in our society. So I, I won't pretend to, to have answers that you haven't already tried to find. But I will say that, you know, the printing press you know, what was it, 1400, something like, no, early, I forgot. Yeah. The, so you can ask the question, how long did it take before people figured that you might print news on a sheet of paper and then post it on the town wall? Like, how long did that take? Like a century or more? All right, look at the things, you know, once we invented cinema, how long did it take before people, it occurred to people to film something other than a staged play? Mm -hmm. All right. It happened relatively quickly, but we still had to sort of get through that. And so I'm wondering, the internet, or not so much the internet, social media is it's 15 years old, really. Okay. That's nothing on the timescale of human civilization. So we're kind of adolescents in it. We're a little more than toddlers. I would say we're early adolescents. We're, we don't quite know, you know what it's for or how to use it. And by the way, I'm not implicating actual adolescence in this. I'm talking about society's interface with social media. We're in our mm -hmm. adolescence. And I, am, I, yeah. I tend to be more wishful thinking than not. And I say to myself that a few more decades, we will invent the right way to use these media. And the better ways will win out over the less good ways. And so this is what I tell myself, because to criticize something that's not yet formed, to look at a racehorse just born and you see how lanky its legs are and it can barely walk, you're not going to say, ah, this has got no future. No, it's got, it's got to come to shape. It's got to learn how to behave within its own skin. 
and then it'll become the racehorse we expect it to. So I, I have that kind of confidence in our future, which is, I know, completely unfounded on anything real. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just wishful thinking. How concerned are you about social media in particular and, and about the, the way in which it it's seeming to fragment our public conversation on important topics. I mean, is it something that, that worries you or do you, are you just taking it in stride and you think it's, you know, Twitter isn't real life or it's not enough of real life to really worry about? And, you know, it's, it's, it's not a fundamentally new problem. We've always had a problem of people either being ignorant of what's going on or being misinformed or you know, succumbing to the various biases we've already mentioned. Boy, how much does this capture your attention? What's going on now with yeah, social media? Yeah, so I'm, I'm on the fence about this. The value of social media at its finest is unmistakable, unimpeachable, no pun intended there. It's a, I think it's the value of connecting with people of like mind and like spirit when you might otherwise have been alone in your world or in your community. I think has huge value to us socially, culturally, perhaps even geopolitically. The, the fact that if you are oppressed, you have a platform that previously would have been inaccessible or you wouldn't even know how, to, how you could possibly get your message out. So, so, yeah, I think that's very strong and very powerful. The divis divisiveness is that, that worries me. Because, and I don't think I have just halcyon glasses on, when I remember when you could have an argument, you could even say, oh, who are you going to vote for? Oh, I'm voting for Arnold Jones. Oh, I'm voting for Betsy Smith. Oh, oh, what, is, what about her programs? Oh, I like this program and that. Oh, how about you? Oh, that's cool. Okay, well, good luck. Good luck. And let's go have a beer. Is that conversation even possible today? I'm thinking it was possible mm. in the day. In the, back in the day. I don't think people shook hands and said, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, as their identifying, as their number one identifying feature. In the chapter, it was originally titled War and Peace, but I spent so much time talking about politics, I just changed it to conflict and resolution, that the people now in their Twitter bio say, I'm Republican, or I'm Democrat. It's like, I'm human, is my answer to that. And I kind of, I, I tweeted recently the line from Gilbert and Sullivan, HMS Pinafore, Mr. Porter's song. There's a line in it, one of my favorite lines. It says, I, I always voted at my party's call. I've never thought of thinking for myself at all. <laughs> I just love that. Mm. <laughs> he, he just comes out and says it. And so, I, I don't know, do we need more than a two-party system so that the, the divisiveness is not, you're either with me or you're against me. If you throw in some more parties on a spectrum, and I, and I burn a lot of pages on spectrum and, and, and how our brain somehow wants things to divide mm. so that you're with me or against me. Is it black and white? Is it up or down? Is it hot or is it cold? Is it, and oh, maybe it's in between. And the more you recognize that there are postures that are in between where you are and who you're having an argument with, then you begin to see life on a continuum. I came to this as an astrophysicist because everything in the universe is on a continuum. The colors of stars, the temperatures, their masses, their distances, their, their cluster sizes, their everything. So for us to think about it and talk about it requires that you embrace the full range 
of ways that nature manifests itself. When that happens, I think we become less polarized. Again, I'm just mm. very wishful thinking here. So all you have to do is read the book and it solves all the world's problems. <laughs> like I said, yeah. the pre-Thanksgiving gift, it's got to be there. Well, to, uh, to land squarely on, on one of the more polarizing topics of the day, we're, we're having this conversation, I believe, during the week where the Supreme Court is considering affirmative action based on a lawsuit against Harvard and I think you know, the University of North Carolina. Do you have a position on that? What do, what do you think should happen at this moment in history around affirmative action? Yeah, so I, I think many people forget the original parameters surrounding affirmative action. Affirmative action was, we will look harder to find people who are otherwise, who has been, have otherwise been disenfranchised by the system, and because we think we're otherwise missing them. Okay. And so then you find someone who's, who's got high scores and who does all the things that all the other people you're admitting have done, but you, you never noticed them. You didn't look across the tracks to even see if they were there because it wasn't part of your search algorithm, if I may use a tech term in a pre-tech era. And so, you know, you know what's affirmative action is Branch Rickey getting <laughs> number 42. You know what's affirmative action? Yeah. Branch Rickey getting Jackie Robinson to join the Major League Baseball, which had, when was this, 1947? We went through 45 years of everybody being white in an entire league, and no one is even thinking twice about that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I watched uh, 20 players, and every one of them is white. And wait a minute, there's a black person sitting next to me in the stands. Did it occur to anyone that maybe they could and want to participate? You go to concerts, you go to the opera, you go to Broadway, everybody is white. And does that mean there are no talented black people? No, you just weren't looking for them. So the roots of this were an attempt to get people to open their freaking eyes and see who else is out there, period. Mm. To the extent that that has changed over the years, where now it's synonymous with let's admit someone who's less qualified, whatever the parameters are being invoked for qualification, what I would say is, if I were the admissions office, I would say, what has the person done within the world that they're born into? Okay, is it a broken family? Is it, did they, did the family have books on their shelves? Does it, what, whatever that is, and I want the best student body I can possibly, by the way, Best student body doesn't mean that they're already great. Best student body would mean I want the people who, by the time I'm done with them as a university, mm. oh my gosh, they will rise and shine because they've already risen and shined in whatever environment they're in, okay? I think that's a completely defensible posture to take. And if somebody had to, because they, they, they had a working mother uh, and, and, and no father at home and they have to take care of their little kid, but they managed to start a knitting project where they knitted for homeless people or whatever, these are initiatives people are taking. And do you realize Harvard, if they wanted to, could fill their entire entering class, the undergraduate, with valedictorians. They have more valedictorians applying than there are slots in their entering class. Yeah. After all the dust settled, if they admit about a third of their entering class as valedictorian. Well, what happened to the rest? They didn't do anything interesting in their lives. 
They're just getting high grades. And if you think high grades is what distinguishes people who do great things from those who don't, you are, you got to take another look at who's out there and who's shaking and moving this world. So what I wonder is, how come there weren't these affirmative action lawsuits back when all of these colleges admitted stupid rich people who happened to be hmm. children of legacy cases? Where, where was the lawsuit then? Where was the lawsuit for, why isn't there a lawsuit, if you really care about grades, where's the lawsuit against uh, underperforming athletes who were brought in for the team that rally everybody mm. on the weekends for the football team? Oh, well, their grades are low. That's okay. They're the star quarterback. Well, it's not okay if you're looking at qualifications that are academic. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm intrigued that it's only coming up with regard to, but, but surely they, they'll have a generalized statement about this, but we know what the cause of it, right? And so, so yeah, I, I like people who maximize their environment, no matter who they are, not, no matter where they came from. And you're going to find them in the inner city. You'll find them in the suburbs. You'll find them, and by the way, if you're rich and you went to a prep school, uh, how do you maximize that environment? Well, you, you started at a higher, uh, at a higher plateau. So I'm not going to look highly on it just because you're born into something that someone else would have to struggle to achieve. Show me what you struggle to achieve. And if there's nothing there, I'm looking past you if I'm the admissions yeah. office. Well, I think the, so the, the legacy issue you bring up, I think that's pretty easy to resolve. I just think it, it's clearly unethical, but it's very easy to see why it has been held in place for so long. Oh, of because course. You, of course. Fundraising would just go through the floor if, if the moment you cut that. Because the, a university has reasons. its own survival as its own yeah. prime directive, of course. Yeah, I have, a, I have an analogy that I've been using, which I you know, all the while have worried might be somewhat naive or, or quixotic, but it, it feels to me to be ethically true I mean, it, it's, and worth orienting toward. And it's the, the dream I have for human civilization is that ultimately we're going to get past race to the point where, though there, will, there may still be racial difference and, and even difference that we, we can celebrate in, in the sense that we, we might admire, you know, the, the cultural corollaries of it, or the, I mean, it's not, I'm, not, I'm not imagining a world where we all converge on the same and, and precisely the same culture, but I'm imagining a world where we truly get beyond the political and moral significance of race. And I mean, so the analogy I, I have been using is, is to hair color, right? And it's just, it would seem absolutely perverse if we, care, if we really cared about differences in hair color so that our society was fragmented along those lines and you know people would 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 worry about the representation of blondes and brunettes in various companies or industries or or colleges i mean no one has thought to study how many blondes got admitted to harvard last year and if the, if it didn't track the exact representation in the population i don't think anyone would think well you know harvard is biased against blondes or biased toward blondes in some sinister way and i I well understand the history of racism in our society and why we're where we are with respect to race. But 
does that seem like a valid goal for you to get to get to a place where race is really just where where the I mean, I asked this question. I think in previous decades it would be obvious. I mean, certainly in the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr., it would have been obvious that something like this, some post-racial future, would be the goal. But now it seems that, based on recent identity politics, is that that goal is explicitly disavowed. You know, there are many people, you know, most of whom are probably younger than we are, who think that it's. That goal is itself an expression of insensitivity to the gravity of and, and the significance of racial difference. I'm just wondering what you think about all of that. Yeah, so first, I agree with you, and I've heard you uh, speak on this many times with regard to hair color as just this arbitrary thing. Would, you, would we mm-hmm. be trying to have hair color quotas? So, and I'm in full agreement. I do talk about hair color in the race and color chapter, if I just briefly take a slight off-ramp here, where, you know, if someone commits a crime and then the police, if you're robbed, let's say, and the police officer comes up to you, can you describe the perpetrator? And then you're expected to say that they're either black or white or Asian and maybe Hispanic. And that's it. Four categories. Four categories. And I think to myself, my gosh, Based on four categories, the police are now going to look around the landscape and pick up people who fit one of these categories. And could that have been the occasions I've been picked up by the police because someone said a black person did it without regard to the actual skin tone of the black person? So for some reason, we're not, we don't recognize, again, the full spectrum of what's out there. And I know that we have the capacity to because walk into a pharmacy and look at the hair products aisle, and there's an entire aisle, bottom to top, of hair color with a different model portrayed on the cover of every box. 200 colors, okay? At least 100. You're going to be very unlucky when when the perpetrator is described as having, uh, what was it, Mac, bass tone, (laughs) MC41 or whatever. I forgot what your your cosmetic is. As a minimum. Is, is, is bring, <laughs> yes, bring the Mac uh, beauty, beauty scale with them and have them point to what came closest to the skin color rather than bin them into one of these four blunt categories. Hmm. So, so when, that was my occasion to think of hair color in, in that context. Yeah. But yeah, more yeah. to your point, I'm not worried about the identity seeking. But just so no one's confused there, you, you say at one point in the book, you've been on television so many times that you now know what, you, what foundation color the, yes. the makeup person should use for you. Yes. yes. Yeah, what, the, the perfect in Mac, match, in, right. in Mac brand, yeah. <laughs> and so, and it was interesting to learn that you, have this, you can have the same shade, but one leans yellow and one leans red mm. to find these other. So I was just very impressed that people, when they need to, do think about the nuances of what, but back to your point, I don't have a problem with people wanting to be seen and identified as a group, especially if that group had been historically disenfranchised, because it is in response to having been ignored or culturally or to have Mm -hmm. been oppressed. Okay. Both of those are equally bad, perhaps. What I do know drawing my cue from history, is when I was a kid in the 1960s, my parents were big fans of Broadway, grew up in New York City. We would see Broadway plays. 
And they made a point of taking us to the Broadway musicals that were explicitly all black cast. Okay. The most famous among them might have been uh, Hello, Dolly, Mm. which had Pearl Bailey as the main character. And I remembered seeing this and I say, well, why, you know, I'm 10 years old or 12, I said, why are they, why does everyone have to be all black? And then I'd realize, as I matured not many years after that, that there were black actors around all the time, but were never selected for any plays, even when skin color made no difference to the character. And so the thing to do was you make your own plays, like the Negro League in baseball. They made their own league, basically. And so how long do you do this? You do this until the mainstream operation sees and recognizes you and folds you in to, into, and when that happens enough, whatever that enough is, mm. you know, that's a fuzzy boundary, but whenever that's happened, you don't need to have an all black cast. You don't need to have an all, you don't have to. And so the distinction of being black then evaporates. I'm just catching, I'm a little behind on my binging, but just watching some episodes of Euphoria on HBO, which tracks Mm. the troubled life of teenagers in high school and suburban high school. As far as I can tell thus far, it is transracial, okay? There are black people and Asian people and white people, and there's no reference to that fact. They're just actors, students. They do have the geeks. And the beautiful women and the jocks, those are kind of eternal in high school. And even the bullies, okay, right? But it's transracial. And so, uh, so I, I think that is still to come, but only when that community that's trying to self-identify is satisfied that they don't need to self-identify mm-hmm. anymore because they're absorbed into, in a welcoming way, into all the ways that anybody else is in a free society. So I, I think it's a step in a direction to the point where we reach Martin Luther King's goal of judge by the content of your character, not by the color of your skin. It is hard to know when we've arrived at the moment where we can declare victory even when there's serious inequality in our society. I mean, that, that's why I it's wonder hard. whether... You're right. It's Using hard. class. I mean, if we use class as a as the relevant variable. In some ways, it's, it's much less polarizing. It, it wouldn't be using race, but yet it would disproportionately solve for racial inequality because so much of that is correlated with, so much of class inequality is correlated with racial inequality. That would be uh, my admissions office routine, correct. I would, I would hmm. basically, whatever you, your world is, how, how well did you do in your world? And, and I want you, if you, if you really right. maxed out on what your world could have offered you. Yeah, so, right. so uh, I think that's a first step if you wanted to be transracial on that. And then, because in America, it's, it's, it, face it, it really, money makes a difference, perhaps more yeah. than your skin yeah. color does, right? Money buys you a seat at the table. Well, and, it does, and it's, you know, it's, I mean, people f- could be forgiven for wondering whether skin color really, to take the other side of it, whether an ambient level of racism still exists to make a difference because, as I think you point out in your book, in the service of a slightly different point, one of the most successful groups in American society at this point, year after year, are Nigerian immigrants. Yes. Right? So you can imagine Nigerian immigrants are 
getting hit with the same level of ambient racism as any African American uh, or some version thereof. And if they're thriving, it seems to, you know, again, there, I'm sure there are caveats to this, but it would seem to dissect out the variable of, you know, racial animus as a blocker for success in our society. I mean, I guess, I guess one, uh, let me just add one of the caveats so I, I don't seem like a moron. <laughs> I, I, I can only I can only imagine that the people who are immigrating from Nigeria are disproportionately either already well off or already well educated. I mean, if we're, if we're bringing in nothing but engineers and um, economists from Nigeria, well, then okay, then they have the, the, some kind of topspin that would overcome more or less everything. But there's something there where you know if we could magically remove all the racists tonight we would still be left with this inequality that we really need to deal with. And then, and then class might really be the, the lens we want to use to deal and with of that. Of course, uh, Coleman Hughes has referenced this with regard to right. the West Indian uh, descendants, right, rather yeah, yeah. than the, the ones that trace from uh, African slave trade in mainland United States. And, and so you're right, this would be a way to control the variables and see what the actual forces are that are operating. I would say that it's not just whether you're an engineer or not, it's what is your capacity to resist oppressive forces? And the, uh, I have a cousin who I had a long conversation with this. In fact, he's, he's credited in the book for giving me some libertarian Texas rancher views on the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how often do I hang out with such a person. But what he said, and I, and I agree with him, that whatever is the value of sensitivity training that is going on in the workplace now, I don't know how much you get to see the trend lines in the workplace. It's quite different from even just 10 years ago. What's going on with uh, diversity, equity, inclusion officers being, you know, VPs being hired in, and the culture is shifting in the workplace. I think in a progressive way, uh, it, may, it might overshift and have to pull back a little, um, is my guess, but I think it's in the right direction relative to the workplace of even a decade ago. But the, you have sensitivity training so that you can be sensitive to the emotions of others so that you won't offend them and so that they won't offend you. Okay. So what he said was, you know what would be even better than that? If we had desensitivity training, <laughs> I thought, hmm. of course. <laughs> so you know what desensitivity tra- sensitivity training is? It's Sam, I don't know how old you are. I, I got maybe eight years on you. 55. 55. I'm 10 years on you. Mm. And definitely in my day, the mantra in the schoolyard was, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That you do not hear that in today's schoolyard. And mm. at the same time, Martin Luther King made a beautiful statement that you don't hear today. It's, you can only be ridden if your back is bent. Mm. And I took those two bits of advice to heart. So all the crap I went through growing up. Here I am, I want to be an astrophysicist. Really, kid? With your skill? Really? No, you should be the basketball player. You should be this. You should be that. Uh, one day, that's all going to come out in a book. But until then, let me just say that the resistance training I had from my parents who lived through far worse than I did and through the, mm. the wisdom of you can only be ridden if your back is bent. And that, that timeless adage, Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That got me through. And I'd be dead otherwise. I'd be mm. an emotional wreck 
And so what's happened over the years is, I'm seeing from the outside here, that emotional stress from a verbal bully has been judged to be as significant, as severe, or more than the physical stress from a physical bully. And so your emotions have been elevated over the decades, the last 30 years, I would say, to the level of the physical bully, which was a time-honored feature of high school life in movies, right? (laughs) There is no Back to the Future movie without a bully, all right? Mm. And it didn't occur to any of us, I'm embarrassed to say this, to report the bully to the principal. The bully was just a character type in the school. And you had to like, you know, avoid them and make sure you didn't piss them off. And this is a whole social training that went on. So. Right. Although if memory serves, you became a, what, a six foot three (laughs) college wrestler? Yeah, I was an undefeated wrestler. Yeah. So I can't imagine there were too too many bullies in the end, but maybe (laughs) maybe you got unlucky when you were before you reached your stature. I wanted to be a superhero. I I think this might be common among little boys, but my superhero was going to be the geek protector because I was also a geek, Uh, right? uh Back then I had a slide rule and later a calculator and how many digits of pi did I memorize? And I would see when the cool football player would beat up on the geeks. And this is before the football player realized the geek could help them with their computer. Okay. Mm -hmm. That that whole Mm -hmm. balance of power shifted (laughs) in the 1970s going into the 80s. I would say right at the dawn of the movie, Revenge of the Nerds, that was the beginning of the blossoming of the nerd culture to be respected by others because basically one day you're going to be working for us. But at the time before that was the case, I wanted to be geek protector. And you just shine digits of pi, like, like the bat signal, shine digits of pi up into the clouds. I would see it. And the more digits, the more serious the case was. <laughs> I would fly. And totally kick ass because I was mm-hmm. I was big enough and I knew enough about martial arts and especially wrestling to just I had full confidence in those situations. But yeah, I you want to try to not have the world derail you because your your ambitions I think are more important than other people's attitudes towards you. Mm. Okay, final question. You mentioned Back to the Future. If you had a time machine and you had to relocate, you had to move, let's say, fifty years into the past or 50 years into the future, you could take, let's say you could take friends and family with you, but you had to pick one, where do you move? Oh, definitely into the future. There is no, oh my God. No question. Oh, no, no. If you are female on the gender spectrum, if you're black, historically disenfranchised, there is no time in the past where right. civilization... Okay, so let's, let's remove that variable because that could be a confound. Let's, let's, no, let's that's make an important. The... That's everything. That's, no, I, I don't know, want to but, go to the past. No. No, I like okay. my smartphone. <laughs> I want to see what the... Right. I've always wanted to see. The, the de- on my deathbed, holding aside that, okay, I won't see my family anymore, I would say, gee, I wonder what new stuff is going to be invented that I will not see yeah. and I will not participate in. That would be a sad moment. So send me into the future with the family. You would not at all be tempted to go into the past and with your disproportionate knowledge of everything that is to come to to basically be a, a superhero in the past with your understanding of future science, et cetera? No, because, uh, f- oh, sure, except 50 years ago, hmm, yeah, okay, so 50 years ago, the taxis didn't pick me up going north in Manhattan because that's where yeah. Harlem was. 
life for me was not smooth and easy. I was overcoming the low expectations of others for who and what I would be in life. And I've known since I was nine, 10 years old that I wanted to study astrophysics, which ultimately became the path of most resistance through an unwelcoming society. So even armed with the knowledge that I have, where you can, oh, the, I know the market's going to tank <laughs> throughout the 70s for inflation. No, I don't, it's not, I don't think that way. Yeah. I think about yeah. my life experience and what I would do and how I like knowing the new things we have about health and what you eat and what role exercise plays and things that we were just barely getting to know at that time. And so, no, I, I, there's no time in the past. You're not sending mm. me anywhere near it. Well, Neil, it's always great to speak with you. Thanks again for your time. And once again, the book is Starry Messenger, and I, I highly recommend it. I, I recommend long walks in your company. Okay. <laughs> and I'll say, you know, 50 years from now, that time machine, I'll probably be dead. But mm. you go by my tombstone, and I have what I want on my tombstone in the second to last page of the book. Uh, it's a quote from the educator Horace Mann, who was mm. a university president, and there's even some schools named after him today. But early 1800s, he gave a commencement address. At the end, he says, I beseech you to treasure up in your hearts these my parting words. Be ashamed to die until you have achieved, achieved some victory for humanity. And that's all I'm trying to do, just make a better world. A nice. As a minimum, a better Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> I would imagine your, what is it, your 437 honorary doctorates must have tested some. But it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> 20, only a mere 21 uh, attest to uh, something you've achieved on the behalf of humanity. Well, thanks for uh, noticing that. I, the, the head of NASA once told me, I was visiting him on a day when I was to receive an honorary doctorate in the Washington area, and the head of NASA is in Washington. And he says, I know you're thinking the honorary doctorate is nothing, you know, it's, it's a cheap degree. And then he told me something I've never forgotten. He said, your actual PhD is the promise that you'll do something great. And the honorary doctorate is the evidence that you have. Mm. And I said, oh, oh, okay. All right. So yeah. I'm with him on nice. that. Nice. I, I will give that speech after all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, it's a delight yeah. to meet with you. As always. Keep up what you're doing. I say this every time I'm on your show. but. There aren't many voices that still value conversation between differing views. I mean, this is, as you've said many times, without conversation, there's war. Uh, and mm. so I paraphrase, but that's really what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. And you go to all the places that you need to go to try to resolve the conflicts in this world. And so this little book I've just written is, it's damn near in your honor, almost as a obligation that I felt knowing that people such as you are in this world that I've got to do my part. And that's what this book mm. represents. Nice, nice. To be continued, my friend. All right, dude. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>